1: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: You see, in this sort of accounting of what had happened on January 6th, that there's all these smaller platforms that played a real role in what's going on, but because they don't talk about the mistakes they made or they don't have, you know, a highly beefed out public policy, trust and safety, you know, legal team. We, we hear less about them. And I think I don't see any signs of that sort of disequilibrium fading, even though we're a year out from what had actually happened.
2: I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Hair Podcast, January 6, 2022. Today we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. One year ago, a violent mob broke into the U.S. Capitol during the certification of the electoral vote, aiming to overturn Joe Biden's victory and keep Donald Trump in power as the president of the United States. The internet played a central role in the insurrection. Trump used Twitter to broadcast his falsehoods about the integrity of the election and gin excitement over January 6th, and rioters coordinated ahead of time on social media and posted pictures afterwards of the violence. In the wake of the riot, a crackdown by major social media platforms ended with Trump suspended or banned from Facebook, Twitter, and other outlets. A year on, how have platforms been dealing with content moderation issues in the shadow of the insurrection? Evelyn Dueck and I sat down for a discussion with Lawfare Managing Editor Jacob Schultz. To frame our conversation, we looked at the recent Twitter ban and Facebook suspension of Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, which took place almost exactly a year after Trump's ban. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 6, 2022. Content moderation after January 6th.
1: So if 2022 is Series 3 of 2020, then so far it has a number of repeat storylines from the second season, 2021. Um, there's the surging COVID cases, of course, but most relevantly for our purposes, politicians are being permanently suspended from Twitter again. But before we launch into se- Season 3, um, let's catch our listeners up on what happened in Season 2 so they're all up to speed. It's been a year since January 6 and therefore a year since the great deplatforming that followed January 6th. And I think we should maybe situate ourselves around what's happened in content moderation in that period of time. So Jacob, uh, remind us what the great deplatforming was and what's happened since then.
0: Yeah. So in the hours and days after the January 6th capital insurrection, there was, there was a crackdown among tech companies on accounts and activities linked to the riot. This isn't to say that they you know wiped out everything, but it was really a muscular wave of of action that hadn't been previously seen directed toward Trump or, or Trump's adjuncts. So in concrete terms, this meant that Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, and a bunch of other services suspended or banned Trump's accounts. And maybe we'll get into the difference between suspending or banning. Google put a freeze on political ads. And then the other sort of big headline moment was the App Store, Apple's App Store removed Parlour, the sort of alt-right platform that was credited, blamed for having been the, the breeding ground for a lot of activity. And AWS, which is Amazon Web Services, also suspended hosting services for for Parler. So those were the, the general things, but the real big moment, and I think the, the thing that caught most everyone's attention was the ban on the at real Donald Trump Twitter account. So Trump, this was the Friday night after the rally, got a permanent ban from Twitter and Maybe we'll talk a bit more about how Twitter actually you know, delivered that ban, but it was really the Trump ban. I think, particularly from Twitter, that felt like the a big turning point in sort of this Trump, who was the the white whale for these companies, someone who exposed the the messiness of their political speech exemptions and whose social media accounts really controlled news tickers and, and generated bad headlines. He was finally gone. So it was this big wave of activity, culminating at least from a sort of spiritual standpoint in, in the ban of Trump's account.
2: I think one of the things that's really interesting to note, I guess, almost a, almost exactly a year uh, we're recording on January 4th since Trump was was banned, is how far reaching the effects have been in terms of his media reach. We can talk about whether or not the deplatforming was effective, but the Facebook Oversight Board in May upheld the company's ban on Trump's account. So he's still off that platform, although they obviously uh, had a, a few nits around the edges, which we can discuss. Um, and Trump has kind of bounced from platform to platform. He had for a while a blog that was sort of a, a place where he could post stuff, but you couldn't really interact with it at all. Then there was Gitter, uh, which is founded by a uh, Trump associate, but he didn't seem to be on. And now he's promised to have a uh, something called Truth Social, which should, you know, Appear any day now. So I think it's really telling how long lasting and far reaching those deplatformings have been. That Trump is obviously still getting his voice out as the former president, but even a year later seems to kind of be struggling to figure out what the best way is to communicate on social media to his
1: followers. Yeah, I think the story of the alt-tech platforms, uh, which we'll definitely come back to later, is sort of one of the most important ones and interesting ones to watch going forward in this Season 3 because, you know, if it does Get off the ground. If any of these platforms do work, there really could be much more of a splintered online ecosystem. Um, and there is some serious money being put into a lot of these platforms now. You know, Rumble, Getter—they have serious financial backing. But as you know, as you said, Quinter, at the moment, um, sort of it's the the dog that hasn't barked. So it'll be interesting to, to see what happens there because, you know, as you said, there was this sort of moment post-January 6 where it seemed like potentially that was the, the start of a new era. And I remember watching the internet in those sort of days following feeling like we were in a little bit of freefall, you know, all of the moves that Jacob outlined uh, as sort of platforms fell like dominoes, taking various measures in response, it was really unclear what would happen. And I think uh, there was this moment of like, is this the start of a new, you know, radically different era in content moderation? Or is this just a unique moment of exception? And I don't know, I mean, we we can talk about that a little bit. My feeling is it was sort of maybe more the latter than the former, you know, some of the measures uh, that happened then have have persisted and we'll talk about one of them today and notably but I think in general that feeling of free fall uh, we've definitely corrected back from that so let's talk about one of the things though that has survived which is maybe a slightly more interventionist approach towards Politician's speech. And, you know, in this nice deja vu moment on January 2nd, uh, Twitter permanently banned uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's personal account for posting vaccine misinformation. And then the next day, um, Facebook suspended her account for 24 hours over the same post. So, Jacob, can you give us a bit of an overview of what happened and, for the blessedly unaware, how Marjorie Taylor Greene used Twitter in general?
0: Yeah. So, as you mentioned, this was this past Sunday, Twitter permanently suspended the importantly the personal account of Congressional Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. So, per Twitter per Twitter statement to Davy Alba of the New York Times, this was because she had violated Twitter's COVID misleading information policy, which it had unveiled in March, and the policy is sort of marked by this very dramatic five strike policy wherein if you each strike leads to a you know more interventionist punishment so your first strike there's no action your second strike is a 12 hour account lock your fourth strike there's a 7 day account lock and then your fifth strike is permanent suspension so she hit her fifth strike for covid misinformation and the specific post in question was had to do with vaccine misinformation so she was removed from from Twitter and then subsequently received a twenty four hour suspension from Facebook. You know, you were asking a bit about what her Twitter presence is like. I can't really say that her Twitter account lived in my head and in my daily consciousness, and you know, dictated my daily work stream to the extent that Trumps did. But she used her her Twitter account as sort of a, a blowhorn for the types of talking points you might see on One America News Network or on more. Other more fringe right wing outlets, and I do honestly think that not to diminish what Trump was posting on his own account, because it was certainly much more impactful, I, hers often felt even more extreme and fringe and and bizarre. And I think maybe the the right way to think about sort of the way that she used her account is Madison Cawthorn, who's another congressional representative and sort of an ideological and spiritual peer to Marjorie Taylor Greene, had. This famous line after he got elected where he was bragging that he was only going to hire communication staffers and and refuse to hire any substantive policy people to work on a staff. I think that's, that's very much the energy that Marjorie Taylor Greene exuded, this sort of highly communicative, very online, very fringe presence on, on the Internet.
1: So Quinta, how derivative are the screenwriters being here? How similar is the Marjorie Taylor Green ban to the Trump ban a year earlier?
2: Well, I don't know about derivative. Maybe you know it's a it's an echo. It's a it's a callback. There's definitely some serious similarities. I mean, I think the you talked about the domino effect. There is a real domino effect uh, aspect to this. So as we noted, Green was banned permanently from Twitter. Uh, On one day, and then the next day, uh, she was banned from Facebook for 24 hours. So I don't think that there have been any other bans, any other dominoes falling after that. But there's definitely a a bit of that sort of Trump, everybody acting all at once element. I mean, I have not looked carefully at Green's tweets to tell, you know, whether she really this particular tweet casting doubt on vaccine efficacy was really over the line in a way that nothing else was. But it really does feel like Trump or sort of one platform took action and then everybody else took action because they didn't want to get left out of the party. So I I'm not sure what to make of that, frankly. I mean, maybe it's an indication that, you know, platforms are still, after all this time, ultimately just sort of reactive entities to some extent. I mean, the other thing that really jumped out at me was how wrote green's response was and what i mean by that is that she she posted responses on telegram to both the twitter and the facebook bands essentially saying this is a violation of my free speech you know i'm being censored we have to take on big tech and it's just really striking to me to what extent that kind of rhetoric has become really almost boilerplate within the republican party right now. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to remember, but even as of, you know, 2017, 2018, this kind of aggressiveness toward major social media platforms was not particularly common. And so obviously, it got a real boost of jet fuel when Trump was banned. And a year later, Republicans have, or Republicans, at least of, of the Marjorie Taylor Greene type, have kind of settled into this comfortable offensive posture when it comes to Facebook and Twitter. I mean, in a way, it's sort of her getting banned is kind of the the next natural step in her uh in her journey as someone who cares mostly about communications, as Jacob says.
0: I mean, I think one other aspect of this that maybe if it's not derivative, has real echoes of of how Twitter handled the Trump case is that if you read, so when when Trump got banned from Twitter, there's a blog post Posted by the Twitter trust and safety team or the Twitter policy team sort of outlining the rationale for the ban. And the way that that reads is sort of very formalistic, of course we ban Trump because this was his fourth instance of violating, you know, rule C, subsection D, sort of that equivalent thing and articulating this very formalistic, very process heavy, sort of devoid of any sensational language. Rationale for banning him. And there's real echoes of that, I think, with this Marjorie Taylor Greene incident, where in the statement that Davey Alba of the Times got from Twitter spokesperson, is, you know, of course we banned her. She violated these rules. We had these rules. And it's this sort of very, you know, almost performative pointing to we have a rule. This particular person violated this rule. And that's why we banned them, which is a very unique and I think a very Twitter specific way of handling these these questions, which to me the, the real flashpoint for that was was the Trump case. Albeit with Trump, there is this standalone blog post, and in the Marjorie Taylor Green case, it's it's a much more just you know one off statement to a reporter. But again, this sort of very formalistic, whether it's window dressing or not, way that they go about doing this, I think is has real echoes of Trump. And when I saw the twitter statement about this i immediately flashback to seeing on that friday night the the twitter statement about trump and there's some real parallels there i think
2: ellen i'm i'm curious what you think about that cuz you've obviously been writing and talking about how in your view platforms need to tie themselves in the mast of of having you know real serious processes and rules what do you make of the kind of twitter facebook approach here
1: Right. So the reasoning is, you know, if platforms have really clear policies and they set them out in advance, then when someone comes along and breaches those rules, you know, they can't be charged as easily with being merely political actors or responding to, you know, uh, prevailing public opinion in the heat of a moment, because they can just point to something that has been written previously and and say, look, we're just, you know, we told you this is what was going to happen, and you know, you know, Republican or Democrat, this is what was going to was going to happen, and it just so happened that it was most Republicans that breach these rules. The, the problem in the Trump case, you know, as I, I wrote about at the time, was it was a really quite strange. Like it was really, they did point to the policy. And as Jacob said, they released this blog post that looked more like a judicial opinion than, a, you know, a, a tech company blog post sort of outlining, you know, Iraq uh, issue rule analysis conclusion. Like here is the, here are the tweets that Trump sent. Here's our rule about incitement to violence. Now here's our analysis applying it. And therefore we conclude we have to ban. Sadly, sadly, you know, with, with, with a heavy heart, uh, we have to ban at real Donald Trump. But the problem was, you know, it, it was it was bizarre to pick these particular tweets. They sort of didn't really read as the most inciting tweets that he had sent. And, you know, there were sort of – there'd always been this general public interest exception, etc., etc. Uh, you know, it, it sort of seemed like a bit of a stretch. They were trying to cloak themselves in formalism but kind of failing. Uh, and then I think one big difference here between the Trump case and the Marjorie Taylor Greene case was they think – were a little bit more successful, um, in part because I think they were anticipating exactly this kind of situation. So Jacob mentioned earlier the strikes policy that Twitter uh, rolled out in this case, and it was introduced in March. And I suspect sort of in anticipation of exactly this kind of situation. So as Jacob said, you know, it it outlines uh, five steps of escalating penalties if people keep breaching their policies. It applies to everyone, including public officials um, and including you or me. Who has five strikes? It's three strikes. Yeah, no, exactly, and so when when Twitter, that was exactly the reaction that um, people had when Twitter rolled out the policy. It Was like, oh, really? Five strikes? Like, well, you know, I mean, well done, on, Twitter. Guys. You're really cracking down. Um, so draconian. But I think you know, in part, it's actually a little bit effective, right? Because it it elicits the response that you have, Quinto, which is like, really, come on, if you've had five strikes, aren't you just sort of, you know, how can you really plead ignorance of what the rules were? And I think that's really the point, right? Because there was this question in the Trump case of had the platforms given Trump adequate notice of what might happen to him if he continued tweeting or posting in the way that he had. And I mean, we can have a conversation about that. But in this case, there's really no question. Um, and then I think that that raises the the other question of Maybe was the ban the point? Like Marjorie Taylor Greene was clearly on notice of what would happen if she kept posting the same kind of content and she kept posting that same kind of content. And Quinta, you were talking earlier about the roteness of the responses in these cases and the cries of big tech censorship. So do you think there's any possibility that the point was to get banned so that she could release, you know, this communications rollout as part of the culture wars? I don't know if I would go so far as
2: to say that the point was to get banned, but it does strike me that getting, getting banned maybe wasn't uh, the worst thing in the world to happen. Travis View, which is a, a pseudonym for a writer on Twitter who follows QAnon, tweeted a, a joke tweet saying that, you know, the big decision that Marjorie Taylor Greene had before her now is whether she's going to get on on getter uh, or whether she's going to wait for the rollout of Trump's uh, truth social. And that's truth in in all caps, by the way. And I do think I mean, I think he was joking, but there is a, a nub of seriousness there, which is that there is a natural draw to saying i've been banned you know my my truth is too tough for twitter they can't handle it i'm taking my business to truth social and then you know you can see if you can take your followers there kind of in the same way that green has been stripped of of committee assignments and so she basically just spends her time on the floor of congress giving speeches um she's not actually legislating in any real sense and so maybe you know now she's she's not on on twitter either of course the the question is going to be you know whether this actually does diminish her reach and i think there are a lot of interesting questions about to what extent that that might be the case but again i think it it you know one of the things about this kind of culture war posture that a lot of people on the far right have taken is that in in a way you kind of can't lose
0: yeah i mean i think quinta's point is an interesting one and it sort of Quinta just spent, you know, that last answer talking about how pro forma this feels from the standpoint of how Marjorie Taylor Greene handled this, and I, you know, spent the previous answer, and so did Evelyn, talking about how pro forma this feels from Twitter, and I think to me that's one of the more interesting evolutions in the year since the the Trump ban is when the Trump ban happened. Obviously, a lot of that has a lot of this has to do with the context and the immediate trauma of what had happened and also the fact that it was Trump, but it, it really felt sort of exceptional and things were, people were scrambling and I didn't really know how it was going to be handled and and what was going to play out. And now, you know, a year later with the Marjorie Taylor green ban, everything feels so pro forma and just like, we're going through this routine of Twitter. You know, she, she posts her, her vaccine misinformation, Twitter kicks her off, points to the rules, gives a statement to the New York Times, and she, you know, goes and talks about how she's being censored and, you know, is sounding off on telegraph and all these things. And to me it's it's this the real evolution in the past year is maybe just how it, it feels like there's a complete playbook of how this plays out from from both sides. Like it's nothing about this was surprising at all, honestly
1: right pro forma from from both sides but I guess if as Quinta says the Marjorie Taylor greens of the world can't lose uh, the the Twitters of the world are probably sitting there feeling like they can't win because no matter what they do uh, in these kinds of situations there's sort of these fundamental questions that we, as a society haven't really resolved yet about you know the awesome power of being able to shut down the accounts of elected representatives in some of the most important speech forums in the world right now uh, and who and how they should exercise that power. so I guess then the the question is is there a straight line between the platform's decision to suspend and ban Trump and then their decision to do the same to green? nearly perfectly a year later. Is the Trump ban a sort of like breaking of the seal on platforms willingness to ban an American political leader or politicians more generally? I think there really was this question in the moment after the Trump ban where it had sort of seemed like such a radical move of whether this was the dawn of a new era of platforms being, uh, you know, the the radical speech police. So uh, I'm curious for either of your thoughts, whether you think that that is sort of, sort of the way it's played out.
2: Yeah, Evelyn, I'm actually I'm interested on what you think here. It does seem to me that Green's ban follows naturally from Trump's ban. Although I could see how we could get to a world where Green was banned without necessarily Trump being banned in the way that he was that that was very tangled. So let me unpack that for a little bit. What I mean is that I think that Over the course of the Trump presidency and really just in the last few years, we saw an increasing willingness on the part of platforms to moderate aggressively. And Evelyn, you've obviously written about this. And I think this is really hard to disentangle from from COVID along with election misinformation, which are sort of really braided together in terms of the the timeline. So it does It does seem to me like we were always kind of headed once platforms started really taking a really aggressive posture in maybe the spring of twenty twenty toward a world in which removing a politician from the platform was going to be something that could happen, and of course Trump's ban was the most dramatic possible way to to do that, but I could certainly see how even if Trump hadn't been banned, given the direction of the Republican Party, that we could have ended up in a world where Twitter, you know, was totally comfortable booting somebody like Green off the platform. And I think what this really underlines is, you know, we see on platforms what we see in every other corner of American society right now, you know, things that would have seemed crazy and over the line. Before Trump, now after Trump, are totally commonplace to the point where, as as Jacob points out, everybody's just kind of going through the motions. Oh, okay, she tweeted something. Oh, okay, we're gonna ban her. And then she puts out a mad statement, you know. And so perhaps there's an element in which there's a way that Trump's ban sort of made this kind of thing commonplace. You know, it's striking that it certainly the ban got ridden up, but it didn't receive a huge amount of news coverage. And that in itself, I think, is kind of noteworthy.
0: Evelyn, I'm curious, what you, you wrote so much about, you know, what had happened at first. What do you make of this? Does this feel fully, you know, derivative or or of one kind of the Trump ban?
1: I mean, the the echoes, as we've been saying, are just so obvious. I think, you know, I want a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. I think there really was this moment of uncertainty in the wake of the Trump ban, the great deplatforming of like, what was this going to look like? And, you know, this real question, I think, of like, what does this mean around the world? Like, if we just sort of expand our vision beyond the American borders for a moment, you know, there are plenty of politicians around the world that post problematic content, use social media platforms to spread propaganda and hate speech and, and, and misinformation. And there was this real sort of question of like, oh, does this mean that platforms are going to apply these rules more consistently in global markets as well, as opposed to just in Uh, America in this moment of where they were really in the spotlight you know there there was really uh, no avoiding the the question of what they should do but were they actually going to be proactive about it in regions where they weren't necessarily in the spotlight but do still have a responsibility rather than playing absentee landlords of what's happening on their services and I think in a sense they have started being a little bit more consistent um, and, and showing more willingness to to intervene with politicians' speech a- around the world. But that's coming from a bar of, like, zero. Like, they really didn't enforce policies against politicians at all because of this public interest exception before. But the idea that we were in this new world of, you know, platforms really being willing to, to step in, I think it really is still seen um, as an exceptional measure and the uh, the default will still be that principle of it's in the general public interest for people to hear from their elected representatives even if uh, what they say is abhorrent except in very limited circumstances where there's an emergency, or some imminent harm. And I think that's really interesting to try and unpack what what those states of exception are. And there are a number of different ones, because one big difference, of course, between the Trump ban and the Uh, green ban was the kind of content. So the Trump ban was notionally to do with incitement to violence, uh, whereas the green ban, of course, was to do with misinformation around COVID. And I think we've sort of seen three categories, I guess, of areas where platforms are more willing to step in, um, which is COVID misinformation, very specifically, um, and incitement to violence. And then there's this sort of question of like election misinformation and where the bound are on that. And so I'm curious, Jacob, how you see those different categories and how much of it is in response to January 6th specifically, or, you know, how these different timelines, as Quinta was saying, you know, that we have running in parallel about policing of COVID misinformation and policing of election misinformation that happen both sort of around the same time.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, the the part of this that feels the most January 6th specific and maybe the biggest impact of January 6th is the sort of the tearing off the bandaid of removing US political figures, right? That's like a significant step that goes beyond what had been done before. But in lots of other ways, in my view, at least my sort of unscientific diagnosis of this is that both election misinformation enforcement and COVID misinformation enforcement have had way bigger impacts on sort of the course of how things have evolved in the content moderation space, on especially on big platforms in the past two years. So just on, on the COVID stuff alone, as you say, Marjorie Taylor Greene gets banned for vaccine misinformation. And, you know, vaccines obviously didn't really exist in the U.S. for COVID vaccines didn't exist in the U.S. for, for mass public consumption on January 6th. And the the way that platforms have responded to COVID is this sort of much more muscular approach and put it's really put them in the position where they have taken on more of the obligation of being these sort of arbiters of, of what's true and what's false, albeit with lots and lots and lots of errors along the way and lots of, you know, relying on public health sources, which have since doubled back on the guidance that they give in. So, you know, that's one track of this. And, you know, I, I would think that a lot of the politician speech that gets flagged these days is actually probably just for covid misinformation and the other track of this and I wrote a bit about this when Trump himself got banned is that really a lot of what happened in the great deplatforming I think was sort of presaged or was sort of foreshadowed in important ways by the way that the platforms approached election related misinformation particularly misinformation about voter fraud and mail in voter fraud so the first tweet of Trump's that got labeled was was a May of twenty twenty tweet about mail in votes and, and voter fraud, and you know, the fact that it was that that was sort of the the lead in for more aggressive enforcement from from platforms, not anything else, seems to me actually to be sort of like directionally consistent with what happened right after January sixth. So if you think about it in that lens, Trump had been getting into this sort of call and response with the platforms where he would. Tweet some sort of misinformation about mail in ballots or voter fraud, they would label it, they would take it down, you know, culminating with what happened on election night, where if you looked on Trump's Twitter feed, it was just like a canvas of labels from from Twitter about election misinformation. And in a way, right, January 6th is is an extension of election misinformation and election result misinformation. And, you know, the, the enforcement of Trump is sort of in kind with that. And So taking a step back and looking at things through that way, I think, you know, this much more muscular approach to content moderation, I think in many ways is sort of catalyzed less by January 6th specifically and more by these sort of atmospheric, big, big picture atmospheric state of exception factors that have surrounded it.
2: I think that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, perhaps points to how January 6 itself is really difficult to disaggregate from the big lie that precedes it and arguably from the, the sort of disruption and political, often violent mobilization around COVID and COVID restrictions that took place on, on the far right. I mean, I, I do think one thing that's really interesting here is we, we've kind of tossed around the phrase state of exception. I do think that the quote unquote exceptional nature of health vaccine misinformation and election misinformation is is really interesting to dig into here because on the face of it, of course, those two things are really different. Um, they obviously address extremely different sort of subject areas, but they're also issues that you can kind of conceptualize as as bounded as constrained to some kind of emergency right so covid of course is an emergency you know we don't want people to be sending out falsehoods about vaccines about how you can catch the disease you can argue that elections are both sort of you know a exceptional situation but necessarily bounded in that of course elections end or they used to but that kind of gets to my next point which is that you know, if we go back to the the origins of the concept of the state of exception, one of the arguments that philosophers have made is that it always necessarily expands. And that's sort of what it does. And that's how state power expands. And in the same way, I think you can see how COVID and elections expand, not nefariously, but it's just much harder to to see them as as bounded events now from the standpoint of 2022 than it was initially, right? I mean, we had the 2020 election uh seems both so long ago and so recent in many ways because we're still arguing about election integrity, how to ensure the integrity of the next election. That issue really hasn't gone away. And of course, we're now in the what, almost second a full year of of covid so i think that kind of points to how it might be attractive to these platforms to say we're going to carve out really aggressive moderation for these specific issue areas that are of concern but those issue areas also sort of necessarily creep outward and i don't mean to imply that there's anything you know malicious or nefarious about that in the way that i think is often implied when we talk about states of exception But it does strike me that, you know, Evelyn, as you've written, sort of aggressive moderation that first popped up with health misinformation early in COVID has really expanded in some ways as a, not to every area, but as a a kind of posture, a mood on the part of social media companies in a way that we might not initially have anticipated.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to, to piggyback on that, Quinto, one thing that just I was thinking a bit about what had happened to Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter account. And one real parallel between vaccine misinformation and misinformation about the literal results of the election is that whereas, you know, lots of different things that Twitter and Facebook are enforcing are very amorphous and very hard to define and even hard to, if they're being taken down for misinformation reasons, are very hard to find concrete sources that say that they are incorrect, right? Both the type of vaccine misinformation that Marjorie Taylor Greene was posting and just blatant lies about the results of the election fall into the category of things that are relatively easy for platforms to say, look, this just is not true, right? Whereas, you know, things about political violence or incitements to violence or or just any sort of number of more mushy, hard to enforce things fall into a separate bucket than that.
1: So I think I might want to sort of take issue with, like, or disagree around the edges with something that each of you said. Although I think you know, I think you're right. Fight, fight, (laughs) fight. Yeah. I would agree with you. You know, Quinter, I guess, and here's a sentence I never thought I'd say, uh, which is one area of overlap between Marjorie Taylor Greene's writings and my own um, is that there <laughs> is uh, this thing of like before COVID and after COVID, uh, which is one of the the posts that she made on Telegram about g- governmental powers. But you know, as you said, Quinter, I've written about how I really do think COVID was a, a pivotal moment an inflection point for platforms and for content moderation more generally because. In this public health emergency, they really—the uh, public pressure, the regulatory pressure, and their own, I guess, um, sense of social responsibility—became uh, such that many finally stepped up and said, "No, we will police." Content on the on our sites purely on the basis of its truth or falsity. Like they'd taken down content, you know, forever um, since they started. But this idea that they would take something down just because it wasn't true really did start in the COVID era, and and, and then did uh, start to creep out into other areas. And I think you know I would say I think we do need to be a little bit more cautious. Uh, you know, the idea of states of exception expanding naturally as they, as they start to do, I, I do think that we should, you know, maybe take a step back and go, is that always what we, what we want to happen? I mean, when, Platforms first started policing COVID misinformation. The basis on which they said they could do this was that there there were authoritative sources of information for them to point to, um, to tell us what was true or false. As as Jacob was saying, it was you know they they said it was relatively easy to work out what was true or false in in these situations. And then as soon as they started doing that, you know there were like dozens of articles around the place saying, oh, they're finally stepping in and doing this in the case of COVID. They should start doing this in the case of political misinformation. And the sort of the further that you go, the the harder and harder it does get to find an authoritative source that people will agree is, is, Authoritative and you know that we can look to and is depoliticized and then of course even the easy case even COVID ended up not being uh, so easy to determine what is true and false and we've sort of we're sort of in this really interesting moment right now where we're reevaluating many of the statements that authorities have made over the course of the pandemic and their truth or falsity and whether they were 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 good guidance I mean there's a little bit of, of that. At play in this particular issue here, and in in the 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 post, because of course that gets weaponized. In like, there are some good faith questioning of authorities, and then there's sort of bad faith questioning of of authorities, and 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 that gets weaponized. Um, that that sort of area of doubt. And so Quinter, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, the post in particular that got Marjorie Taylor Greene banned from, from Twitter and um, had her uh, account put into s- suspension on, on Facebook um, because it ostensibly used authoritative information in spreading misinformation.
2: That's right. So the post in question was citing a database maintained by the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and I believe the FDA also, to argue that vaccines were essentially killing people. Um, so the database in question is called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. I think the acronym is pronounced VAERS, but I have no idea. The short version is that VAERS is a a system of voluntary reporting where if somebody has you know some some bad health event something like that doctors can put in that information to vares to say you know okay this person got their vaccine for measles or shingles or the flu and then two days later they have a heart attack so it is useful on the one hand because great, you have this giant national database of all these potential health problems that could come out of vaccines. That's good. We want to make sure that, you know, vaccines aren't hurting people and are doing what they're supposed to do. And that's why the CDC makes this available. On the other hand, there is a giant disclaimer on VAERS that it essentially says this is this data is self-reported. We have not you know, made sure whether a vaccine actually caused the, the health problem or whether this is just something that happens to occur after the vaccine. And so there's a lot of information in there that, you know, could potentially look scary, but doesn't necessarily have anything you know, bad going on. I'm. There's an article uh, that I looked at from McGill that notes that you know one person reported a bald spot on her head following vaccination. One person just wrote in nosebleed. So these are our patient submitted data, and I think this really gets to the the problem here, as you say, Evelyn, which is that. Green is pointing to a database that is an official database maintained by the CDC, made public so that researchers can, you know, look through this information. And yet she's obviously using it for bad ends. And if you Google, you know, Vares, you will find uh, a lot of people, of experts, essentially tearing their hair out over how this official information is being used for bad purposes, even though it's also a really useful resource for people who are experts. And I think that gets to the the sort of the squishiness around the edges that you're trying to point to.
1: So one of the further parallels between the Green case and the Trump case, and this is something that you've Written about Quinter in, in in the Trump case is you know the the kind of difference between the the personal body of these people and their um, official positions and so they both have two accounts uh, on Twitter. There's their personal account and their professional account. So Trump, of course, had at real Donald Trump, which we've been talking about, but at POTUS, uh, the the formal presidential account, uh, remained on Twitter even while Trump was president um, until it was formally handed over. Uh, in Green's case. Twitter has banned her personal account, but her official congressional account, which is at RepMTG, that's still online. So um, what should we make of that kind of distinction? Is it unduly artificial to say, well, no, this was her tweeting in her personal capacity, but her as a representative uh, should remain online? I mean, they are, after all, the same person. How do we think about that difference? I mean, if you look at the actual, the account that is currently online,
2: RepMTG, it's I'd be interested in, in Jacob's thoughts here. It seems to me to be significantly tamer than her personal account was. It's mostly, you know, screenshots of statements or clips of Green on television or on the floor of Congress or something like that. So there's nothing looking at it, just scrolling through, that jumps out at me as as obviously problematic from the, the point of view of, of Twitter's standards. Um, and, and we kind of saw that division in terms of Trump's accounts as well, you know, that at POTUS was not quite as wild as some of the stuff that went on on, on real donald trump so from the point of view of the platforms you can see how that that kind of makes a, a certain degree of sense on the other hand yeah of course you're totally right like there there is something that is just very weird and artificial about drawing that distinction maybe you could say okay well you know it's twitter's job to just look at what's on its platform take down the personal account and then it's you know the job of members of congress to rein in green in her you know official capacity but it, there is something a bit odd and i think you see that confusion in how the the takedown was originally reported where there are a lot of reports saying green is off twitter and then a lot of people saying no she's not off twitter you know her official account is is still there so i'll definitely be interested to see whether she starts tweeting more sort of out there stuff on her official account now that she has that or whether it's something that she wants to keep and so is going to maybe maintain with a a little bit more of a tame tone
0: yeah i mean I, i was reading back this morning what exactly sort of the chronology of what had happened to trump was and i had i had forgotten this aspect of it but trump in the hours after his real donald trump account was banned he started using the et @potus account basically just like it was his personal account, right? So he literally just migrated from one to the other, and sort of a, a demonstration of how porous the the, the boundary between the, the two bodies might be. And I don't know. I'm I'm sort of inclined to agree with one part of what Quinta said, which is that right. If the onus to do something and to sort of disentangle these two bodies, from my perspective, putting that onus on on Twitter on Facebook seems somewhat ridiculous and, and the better institution to enforce that norm would be right, political institutions and, you know, the Republican Party might consider, you know, sanctioning or, or doing other things to help reinstill the boundary between, you know, politicians' personal expressive function and and things that are flow from their capacity as a, you know, elected representative. And Trump got himself in trouble with this a number, a number, a number of times. And from my view, at least, it's it's sort of a hallmark of the communicative style of that sort of flank of the Republican Party to just collapse the boundary between the two of them and then complain once there's enforcement that sort of you know might ignore the fact that the boundary has been collapsed. Right. So at least as far as I see it, the, the way that politicians and this ilk of politician tends to communicate really puts Twitter and Facebook in. A difficult spot, and I, I don't actually think it's it's all that ridiculous of Twitter to say, look, like she has her official account, that's her vehicle for political communication. She can do with that what she what she wishes, right? So long as she's not just repeating the same error. And I don't know, it, it's it's this weird thing where there's there's been this collapse, and then people sort of complain about the way that the platforms handle it, ignoring the role that other institutions might have in reimposing some sort of boundary.
1: Yeah, so I'd agree generally with that that, you know, you want – platforms to be looking at the violations of the actual accounts that they're thinking of banning um, but again as always you know we run into all of these sort of gray areas and things like that and we have these problems with platforms have rules against ban evasions right so you can't just go get banned from your account and then start posting from another account even though you've been banned and and um, trying to get around the platform's rules and so you know there'll be this question of if uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene starts using her professional account to tweet more like her personal account, whether that account needs to rack up the five uh, violations or whether Twitter will act as if um, it was, you know, acting against the same person. And then you have these like weird sort of uh, rules where there was this period where so Facebook's official rule on Trump the trump ban is that it's banned the voice of Donald Trump from its platform right so if any other account starts like post in the voice of Donald Trump uh, that can be removed so like if any of the trump family started posting as if it was just Donald Trump that would be against Facebook's rules but you know generally if you want to if they want to post about Donald Trump and about fundraising etc that's not banned so you can easily see how these lines start to get blurred. So it's this nice sort of formal distinction of just, you know, enforce the rules against the accounts that you're looking at. But then we run into these issues of then, of course, people will try and exploit those loopholes as well. So then, there's the question of whether any of this actually matters, um, and whether the deplatforming actually works. Whether we're, you know, we've now spent nearly an hour talking about something that is pretty inconsequential because Twitter's just one website, Facebook's just one website, and these leaders have many other forums to to reach their audiences. And Quinta, you've you've written a bit about this, and you've you talked about it earlier when you were saying that Trump really has, in some senses, receded from the public sphere. So what have we learned from a year of Trump's having been deplatformed? And what might it suggest about what we might see from Marjorie Taylor Greene now?
2: So I I wrote about Trump's deplatforming in May 2021, I think, and my conclusion then was sort of, it might have worked. Um, And I don't know if we can we can be more definitive than that, and even that is for a pretty limited definition of worked. So what I mean by that is just that he's not setting the tune of our everyday lives in the same way. You know, you don't you don't wake up to a Trump tweet and it, it scrambles everything. He's sending out missives to reporters, of course, but. That's very different because they have the choice of of whether or not to to actually distribute those things. Um, and I do think that that matters. On the other hand, of course, it is not a coincidence that he lost that megaphone right before he lost the megaphone of being the president of the United States. And I think those two things are are really hard to disaggregate, in part because it did kind of feel like uh, after January 6th. With the impeachment, the banning from various platforms, and then, of course, Trump's you know, going off into private life, it kind of felt like every institution was just done with him at once. On the other hand, of course, uh, Casey Newton at Platformer has sort of made the alternative case that Trump's deplatforming didn't do very much because the Republican Party is still digging into a very aggressive posture that's really focused on uh, undermining election integrity and sort of cementing Republican rule. and. I take Casey's point. I guess I would say that I think if we define worked as, you know, getting rid of Trump on Twitter, got rid of this strain of election denialism in the Republican Party, of course it wasn't going to work, you know that this kind of deplatforming can only do so much. So from the perspective of Green, I guess I would say I wouldn't be surprised if it it decreases her kind of reach her presence on social media and in the everyday lives of people who aren't you know marjorie taylor Greene superfans who are seeking out everything that she says but of course it doesn't make the underlying problem go away which is that congress seated her and people elected her as a representative and so to go back to jacob's point you know we may be asking uh platforms to do too much in the absence of action
1: from other societal and governmental institutions So I think that's a good segue then to talking maybe a little bit more broadly. We've just talked a lot about Facebook and Twitter and these accounts on those platforms as manifestations of perhaps more underlying issues, which of course also uh, manifest on other platforms. And so there's this question of, uh, you know, as we are you know coming up on or as you listen to this on the anniversary of january 6 whether we're focusing our attention on all of the areas that should get our attention so Brian Fishman, who until recently was Facebook's policy director for counterterrorism and dangerous organizations, noted the other day that there's been a lot less public attention paid to the mentions uh, in indictments of how platforms like Signal and Telegram were used by insurrectionists as opposed to all of this attention that we are giving to places like Facebook and Twitter. And, you know, we've even talked today about how all of Marjorie Taylor Greene's responses to these uh, bands on these mainstream platforms are happening on her Telegram channel, where she has a pretty sizable. Uh, following and Brian's suggestion was that people pay more attention to the social media platforms with greater transparency, uh, simply because there's more data to dig into, um, or at least that's one main driver of it. You know, the, I'm reminded of the the old story about the man who's looking under the streetlight for his keys, not because he lost the keys there, but because that's where the light is. And I think we do see this in a number of respects that you know there are a lot more stories about Facebook and Twitter, and they are in some sense uh, some of the more open platforms. But on the other hand, they are also uh, some of the biggest or most uh, biggest in the in Facebook's case or most consequential in, in Twitter's case in terms of their effect on public discourse. So how should we think about that? Are we not giving enough attention to less transparent platforms and how they've positioned themselves in the wake of the riot?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Brian's point here is, is well taken. And to me, the the maybe most symbolic example of this is just the way that the whole Facebook oversight board process about the Trump ban played out, right? So, you know, the Facebook oversight board is this post hoc appellate review, quasi appellate review body that Facebook set up and erected, but, you know, is notionally independent of Facebook and Facebook referred their decision to ban Trump to this board of law professors and, you know, other experts and went through this five month review process about this one single, decision that that had been made and to me the whole thing among other things just really highlighted how misaligned some of the incentives are here right so say what you want about the facebook oversight board but it is this very deliberate process in which a platform is publicly showing its cards and calling out the you know having people call out the mistakes that it had made and doing this very thorough review process and yet because they went through this whole song and dance there's this totally misaligned and, and totally out of whack amount of attention devoted to the way that Facebook had handled Trump's account, when in reality, right, you know, the the Twitter ban was significantly more important. And to me, that's just a microcosm of of exactly how this plays out on a broader sense, where, you know, you, you see in this sort of accounting of what had happened on January sixth that there's all these smaller platforms that played a real role in what's going on, but because they don't talk about the mistakes they made or they don't have, you know, a highly beefed out public policy, trust and safety, you know, legal team. We, we hear less about them. And I think I don't see any signs of that sort of disequilibrium fading, even though we're a year out from what had actually happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, on that point of perverse incentives, Jacob, I just can't resist getting, and now for the Evelyn has a dig at YouTube uh, section of this podcast. Um, I mean, Facebook and Twitter both came out with these, you know, make of them what you will, but fairly public uh, explanations of their bans of Donald Trump. And as you say, Jacob, the oversight board process from Facebook attracted all of this attention and put Facebook in the headlines uh, for, for, for weeks, for months as the process kept playing out. YouTube, YouTube, uh, technically, Donald Trump's uh, account is still somewhat in sort of suspension. They're holding it in this sort of twilight zone um, where it's, it's temporarily banned and they will reinstate it. They will reinstate it, Susan Wojcicki has said, uh, when they determine based on some unknown metric that the risk has sufficiently subsided. And I mean, that is just like the most sort of arbitrary, discretionary, illegitimate way of dealing with this account where they've just sort of, you know, sort of slunk off into the background and are not telling us what they're going to do with this account. But because, because they are so much less transparent, you know, they don't get very much critique about it. Like, I don't think I've read a story. In, in months in, in part like I haven't read a story since the Facebook Oversight board decision about what YouTube is doing with with Trump's account and so you know and as we speculate what might happen to Trump's account uh, on Facebook and Twitter if he runs again you know, again YouTube doesn't feature so I think there really is this perverse incentive when it comes to being transparent and being upfront about what you're doing um, and that YouTube is playing the game really well but that's enough for, for my uh, rant. Quinta, did you have any thoughts about where we are placing public attention uh, in terms of the different platforms
2: you know it, it wouldn't be an arbiter's episode without an evelyn rant on uh, on youtube um i would just direct people to the lawfare uh january 6th project which you can find at the top of the website um and there's a, a list there that you can find of all the information requests that the january 6th committee has sent out and interestingly it includes a so it includes a lot of alt platforms it also includes telegram and the Donald dot win, which I found interesting because there was a recent interesting piece on just security about how the Donald hadn't shown up in any of the indictments released by the Justice Department or charging documents. Uh, but it seems pretty clear that the committee is Casting its net widely. Um, Like I noted, they haven't sent anything out to Signal, but perhaps that's because they're not anticipating any compliance on Signal's part. But it will be interesting when the committee comes out with its report to see, you know, what kind of information it got from which platforms and to what extent there was planning or coordination taking place across different platforms.
1: And The Donald is a nice place to leave this, I think, as well, because uh, it originally started as a, a forum on Reddit. And it was sort of seen as this really big moment uh, when Reddit stepped in and finally banned the forum. And, you know, this, this speculation of finally we've, we've shut these people down. But, of course, they then just went and set up uh, a separate website, uh, thedonald.win and you know this this question of like, well, Reddit solved the problem for Reddit, but did it actually solve the problem of the Donald the more fundamental cause of, of the of the issues as we were talking about earlier, and that sort of deplatforming maybe uh, pushes these things a little bit further out of sight and out of the public eye, but doesn't necessarily fix the problems at their root. So, you know, I guess a, a bit of an equivocal note to end on uh, in an episode about the banning of Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, we'll see what, um, how season three plays out from here. Jacob, Quinter, thanks very much for the conversation.
2: Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brickens Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Hamza Shittu, and our producer is Jen Howell. Please rate and review The Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening.